mood can we get on this podcast? Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov Show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us and we've got an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala and today we're talking with Cassie Robinson, Head of Digital Grant Making at the Big Lottery Fund. Welcome Cassie. Hi both, it's nice to be here. So this is the second time we've met up and recorded this interview. Can you tell us a bit about where we met up last time? <laughs> um, yes, we were in New York at the Ethical Tech Summit, is that what it was called? And I had flown over there to give a talk about the work I was doing at Dot Everyone, and you were there to come and have sessions and to record the podcast, but it was really noisy I can't what was the reason that we're why are we doing it again (laughs) it was noisy and also our microphone didn't work properly which we only discovered when we listened to it back so that's a a lesson for anyone editing any audio please test your connections (laughs) but we did we did manage to then go out to one of the most strangest evenings I've ever had yeah so that was that was a good outcome (laughs) it was (laughs) so to give a bit of uh, insight we went to an event that was people talking about politics, but in a funny way and with a feminist angle and giving out fake awards to people who had essentially been terrible advocates for women and equality. Is that about right? Yeah, it was instead of the Golden Globes, it was called the Golden Probes. Yeah. And uh, it was very strange. Yeah, it was. My highlight, though, was seeing some cool people uh, present the awards. So we had the... Oranges the New Black folks came and did a parody, so that was cool. Yeah. Anyway, this feels a bit calmer, so we're now sitting in London in a quiet room, um, and hopefully this will work. All right, let's get started. So we're always interested in where people start out in the tech sector and the journeys that people take to get there. So how did you get started in technology? So I never think of myself as someone that works in technology and I feel like technology or digital just became a part of my work because I was much more broadly interested and have worked for a long time in the field of social change, social innovation and initially that was actually working as a designer and working as a designer in the public sector so doing kind of service design in the days before there was digital service design and as the field of design grew and the world changed and we are now living in a digital society technology and digital just became another way to address issues or to improve services so yeah my way in really has been through design and you were in what we would call social innovation for a while as well the word innovation gets picked up as a bit of a a buzz thing across a number of sectors not least in government like we talk about here what did that mean to you when you worked in innovation and and now as well Yeah, that always used to make me laugh. Like when I worked at GDS part-time for a year, government digital service, you actually weren't allowed to use the word innovation. It was seen as a dirty word. 
I think of innovation, for me, it just means change. That's basically how I think about it. It's generally where things need to be changed, but it could even be where things need to be maintained. I'm not offended by the word innovation, but I'm more interested in the idea that there's generally always something that can be done better or differently and changed. And that's what I'm more interested in. Better or differently is a really good way to put it. I'm always interested in how words come in and out of vogue. And that seems to happen a lot in our sectors. You mentioned earlier that you were in New York representing Dot Everyone. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like working for Dot Everyone and what Dot Everyone does? So working at Dot Everyone was really challenging because we're trying to build a new organisation at the same time as trying to do work in an emerging field where, you know, lots of people didn't really even understand what we were talking about for the first year or two. So that was really challenging, but I guess a good and interesting challenge. But it was also amazing to work with, you know, lots of women who are ambitious and want to do really important work. And it was the subject matter like thinking about how is technology changing society in our lives is like intellectually very stretching and I really liked that we as a team all represented quite different views which meant that we had people in the in the team that really believed in sort of policy influencing people in the team that really believed in working with business and that being a really powerful lever for change and people in the team who really believed in society and people power and of course you need all those things you need regulation you need business to have better practice and you need people to feel empowered and able to challenge and question how society is changing it made for a good combination yeah that sounds like an area in which is really leading I mean We're hearing over and over again about ethics in technology, and it feels like that's actually an area where a lot of the private sector is catching up at the moment. Also, just as an aside, how amazing is Martha Lane Fox to write a letter and manage to found GDS and then to go on TV and say something and then manage to found Dot Everyone? Did you get to meet her at all? Um, Yeah, no, Martha is relatively present, I would say, in the organisation in that she, well, she's the chair of the board. Um, but she also would come into the office most Tuesdays. Yeah, so she was really supportive and, and, and definitely sort of engaged in what we were doing. That's so cool. Also, we've obviously been doing a bit of research about you and we were just wondering, who are the point people? Good question. <laughs> Lots of people ask that because even if you look on our website, it's not always still very clear. So the point people are an organisation that was founded in 2010. And it was founded off the back of the idea that firstly, it was at a time when there was a really dominant narrative around entrepreneurship. And there was all kinds of incubator programs and accelerator programs, and everyone needed to become a social entrepreneur. And that felt important. But it also was quite a narrow view of the types of roles that you need within change. And I guess there was people, myself included, who were playing a different role 
which was working across different organizations, bringing some different disciplines. So I guess I trained as a designer, but I also did a psychology master. So I have some social science background and all of the point people tend to have, I guess, call themselves like polymaths. It was this idea that whilst you have people building and driving forward social enterprises, you also need people that can translate between different disciplines and sectors people that are really good at sort of that bridge building and that connecting and the kind of sense making work of like what's happening across a field or a sector that you can then intentionally try and connect together more so that was one reason that the point people was created was it was just like actually we want to make that role visible and more valued And I guess the other reason was because we sort of recognised that the kind of nature of the social issues that we were interested in and also facing are complex and it's very unlikely that one sector or one enterprise can kind of address them. So we, we wanted to practice that idea of like if you have different disciplines and sectors represented in one tiny little organisation but you find ways of combining your knowledge and sharing learning and acting together, can you sort of model what needs to happen more broadly? That's great. Can you give an example of a piece of work that you did with the Point People where you practice that in action? Yeah, so I guess there's a couple of examples. So I'm still part of the Point People and I'm only at the Big Lottery four days a week. So I still do work with the Point People as well as we meet every month. So I guess in terms of just that idea of practicing, how do we draw together and make sense of our kind of collective experience and insight? We just do really simple things like meeting every month and in advance, documenting and sharing what we're all working on and the kind of patterns that we can see emerging in our own work and then together in the session we kind of sense make and work out like what are the patterns here like what's the opportunity or what's a wider insight we could share but then in terms of like practical work one of the pieces of work we've been doing for the last three years is there's a foundation called Lankily Chase and we've been running a program with them called Systems Changes which is primarily about if you're working in a geographic place let's say in York and you know that the sort of city or area of York needs to work better together as a kind of system where you need the local authority, you need the frontline workers in different civil society organisations, you need other public sector bodies, you need basically people from different parts of the system or different parts of the city to orchestrate their efforts more. The Systems Changes programme is designed to do that. So I guess it's looking at what are the relationships that you need to sort of work across organisational boundaries. What are the what's the kind of infrastructure you need? Whether that's like what kinds of data could can you share? So another way of describing it is like ecosystem design. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that often when organisations try and do work like that, they focus on the infrastructure first as opposed to focusing on the relationships. And that's what I thought was really interesting about the point people that you really put a lot of emphasis on bringing the correct people together and as opposed to how do we make data better straight off the bat. Yeah, although I really think that a lot of the people and organisations that work more in, say, the systems change, who talk about systems change or systemic change or ecosystem design, if they haven't also worked around technology and and sort of digital, they don't recognise that things like data infrastructure is actually just a really tangible way 
to kind of create a reason for people to come together and be in more relationship with one another. Because a lot of the organisations that work around systems change can get lost in the relationship stuff. You can spend like a whole year just trying to build better relationships and form more very collaborative kind of culture. And sometimes throwing in a piece of technology, you know, building a platform, it actually does kind of force people to come together around something. That's super interesting. So having sort of both sides of the coin, as it were. So you quite recently moved to the big lottery fund. Everything must still feel quite new and exciting. What are you most excited about working on at the moment? So I think the most exciting thing right now has been we've just finished reading 1200 applications of which I read 400. So I could say that I just actually feel really tired and my eyes hurt. But actually, I'm excited by, I guess, the sort of intelligence that that has given us about where the sector is at and the kinds of things the sector needs. And, you know, it's a huge data set, really, to be able to like see where there are patterns and what, what else we could be doing and funding. So I'm excited about the potential of what we can design based on what we've learned from that the first round of funding that we did a call out for. Awesome. Okay. Um, so moving on from more practical work things, as Kamala said in our research for the show, we read a lot of things and you very helpfully have written a lot as to get our teeth into. Something we picked up on was you wrote about having had lots of conversations with your friends about how often many of the same faces are still in power and those same people can entrench the power structures uh, continually and if we are pro you know bringing some shake up to that and generally bringing down the patriarchy can you give us some tips and tricks about how not to perpetuate that cycle um I don't know if I've got any tricks. I'd quite like some tricks that could deal with that. Um, I, I know the blog post that you mean. And I think the first thing is is just like, how do we all have more awareness about when and where we're doing that? So I, I think I wrote that because I'd found out quite a lot of my peers were actually kind of behind closed doors, getting a lot of their sort of work advice from older white men, um, you know, and if they had to give a talk or if they had to write a new strategy or if, or if they needed a co-author for a book or a report they were writing or they needed a speaker for their event. I just felt like actually my peers of, of whom I suppose I wanted or expected better, which sounds really not a nice phrase to use, but anyway, I've said it now. I was like, actually that's really bad like why are we like leaning back and relying on like old white men to do all these things especially when we know amazing women um or just women or people that identify as women um so I think that was what spurred it and I and then I thought you know it even down to what might seem like really small things but who are you retweeting who are you even following on social media yeah, so I think it, it's just that. It's like if you're someone that has some position of authority in in some way or if you're someone that does host events or you're someone that is getting advice for things, just being more mindful of like where you're going for that. And that's what I mean by perpetuating power. And then I guess that did also extend to one of the things that I 
found difficult at Dot Everyone was generally think tanks are, I would say, their primary relationship and function is to influence what's happening in Westminster or Whitehall. I've, I think I was always told it's Whitehall. And there was something for me that was, you know, that recognised the need to do that because I'm not naive. But it really bothered me that by by only influencing through those traditional policy lines, you are, again, perpetuating power. You're basically reinforcing this idea that it's only in Westminster and Whitehall that real change can happen. A, I don't believe that, and B, I really don't want that to be the case. Yeah, definitely understand. There was a really practical example I thought of as you were explaining, which is there's a tool you can use to check your Twitter, the people that you follow on Twitter, their gender, so male, female, and non-binary, and it gives you a proportion split. And I checked mine a while ago, and I was quite pleased to see that it was representative of you know national averages. But literally every single time I think to follow someone else now, I have it in the back of my mind that I don't want to add to one pill disproportionately. And if anything, I want to weight it more towards women and underrepresented groups. Um, so I think... Definitely, there's something in that which you can take as a as a real life thing that affects the people that you're looking at. And even the content that I'm seeing on Twitter is now consciously skewed away from the traditional power structures. And I wouldn't have thought of that unless I had gone through the kind of practical checking of it. So that's mm. that's really good. Well, you'll have to share that with me, and then I'd love to pass it on to some people. It, this makes me sound like a total weirdo, um, but I did actually once go through some people's Twitter followers. This is a, a few years ago. Basically, a couple of older white men who run some of the organisations in the sort of social innovation space. And I, I was looking at who they followed and they were basically following other older white men. So I guess it's also making some of the people in powerful positions, um, even if their power is like what I would call old power how they're like reinforcing that kind of status quo by who they think is influential and are following yeah there might be something we can do with twitter lists when we can encourage people to follow different groups and things like that that would be cool so something else that sparked our attention is the fairer tech events grant we'd love to hear a bit more about that particularly because we saw that they sponsored afrotech fest which might be one of our most loved things that we would like to support from the podcast here and we spoke to someone who previously supported that event as well so can you tell us a bit more about what it is and what was the thinking behind fairer tech events i can i can't remember whose idea it was to do and i suspect it wasn't mine so i can't take the credit for that it's probably rachel's but yeah i guess the idea was how can you encourage more responsible ethical practice within the culture of tech events which tend to I guess be extensions of the culture in technology organizations and the industry as a whole and wanting to you know create this small fund to bring a bit more visibility to those what are the kind of responsible practices that we can introduce at tech events and how could we support events that we're doing that as a way to make it more normal. I don't actually remember who we've given all the awards to, but I think it's a really nice idea. It's, it's just, I think it's a really simple idea, actually, as a way to try and influence better practice. Maybe it's because you've given out so many awards that you just can't keep track of them. 
<laughs> I've never won one though. <laughs> so something that we see often in organizations like One Team Gov are people who are trying to build networks and build out their field. This is obviously an area that you've worked in a lot. So could you tell us some tips that you could give to individuals or organizations when it comes to field building? There's two things. There's probably more, but I, I think there's there's something to be said around just being more networked and, and thinking more consciously about who and how you build relationships. So we talked about that at Dot Everyone, and it's not that kind of shoulder pad wearing 90s, 1980s style like networking. It's being networked, and there is a real difference in that. And, and I guess being more networked is primarily for me about recognizing that you can't do this alone and the kind of work that a lot of organizations are doing you need to work with others and and I guess like being more networked helps spread and drive like your mission as well I think field building is more intentionally about okay this is the kind of change that we want to see and there are all these other organizations that we feel are in some way trying to create that change too and we all need to find ways to orchestrate our effort I talk a lot more about coordination than collaboration because collaboration feels like heavy I feel like it's still really important at times but I don't think it always has to be a collaboration but I think like coordinating effort and and actively trying to bring more coherence to a set of organizations that are really trying to build a new field and create a similar kind of change that's what I mean when I talk about field building yeah that basically sounds like one team govs mo and I think that's interesting because in the public sector especially you often see different government departments doing similar things it's a something that has come up over and over again and often it can feel like there's competition and it's all about remembering that we're actually paid by the same people and we need to collaborate together. Yeah, I think in our first attempt interview, I did, I mentioned sort of Kit and One Team Gov as an amazing example of, although I would, you know, One Team Gov for me feels much more like, a mo- you know, building a movement where I think the skill is much more about energy and culture and the relationships and the kind of building a sense of what's possible and create, creating sort of momentum around that. Whereas I think field building is like, it's amazing if you can also do movement building as part of the field building, but field building for me is, feels probably a bit more um, like, okay, what are the kind of policy pieces that we need to create? What are the institutions and the other organisations that we need to connect with? It's more about all the different parts and trying to bring those together rather than who are all these amazing change makers that we need to connect to one another and mobilise together. Talking about amazing change makers, one of the things we talk a lot about on the One Team Girl podcast is leadership. Can you tell us what you think good and responsible leadership looks like in the sectors that you've worked in? Um, God, that's really difficult. I've seen bits of good leadership in different people. And I think, I don't think there's any one person that I'd say they've got it all nailed. I mean, it's really hard being a leader. I think leaders need to have a really 
strong sense of purpose. I think if you want people to connect to what you're doing, then you need to like really bring a bring alive a sense of what that is. So I think that's like a key thing. Part of me wants to say, I think like distributed leadership and flat organizations and no hierarchy is, you know, that that's a so like sort of leading from behind or or a service leader. I mean, that's amazing if it works, but I think that's quite hard to do. And I think I've realized there are actually some people that want to be led. So I think it really depends on your team as well and their their needs, their maturity, their confidence. And and if you're like some some people just want to be led and and I think that's actually sometimes the harder thing to do is to step into like okay, these people need me to actually walk in front a bit. But then I think, you know, I do think Kit, I think the leadership around one team govern there's um a woman called Immy Kaur who founded Hub Birmingham. They're they're both very good examples of people that have shown leadership, but it does still feel like it's really about the team. It's not about them, and they've managed to build a, a brand around something that's just much bigger than who they are as an individual. And I think that's really powerful. I agree. I think something we've seen very common across the people that we've spoken to who have been in leadership roles is that they've often filled a gap that people didn't realize was there and that people were as you said sometimes looking for some leadership in a space and the minute you start to even inhabit that inadvertently you become someone who people trust more and to me that's that's a really nice sort of productive way of providing value to a team is where they do need a bit of direction or they feel like they need someone just that little step removed to to point them in the right way um I, th- I think there's also something that I'm really interested in how I think people play different types of roles and bring different styles of leadership also just depending on who, the team they're actually working with so I trained as a systems coach and in that work you learn, you know, you think about the team and if there is something that's not going well in that team, there'll be one person that's kind of embodying that and and their behaviour and how they're acting is really acting out what's going on for everyone. And when they leave, it will just manifest in a different way, in the same way. And that will also work for leadership. You probably, a, a certain style of leadership in one type of team, depending on who's in the team and what they need and what they can step up to or can't and then you might move into a totally different organization and be a completely different style of leader yep definitely so one of the things that drew us to chat to you for the one team gov show is that you helped to found the movement can you tell us a bit about that and how it began i think that's a bit grand (laughs) i think i I, I definitely don't think I helped found the movement. I think I was there. I can't remember how I came to be involved at the beginning. I remember that I got the the banners printed for the first event, and I think they still owe me money for that. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. I'll take that hit because I think it's worth it. But I, I do remember being really impressed very quickly by just everyone that was working on the One Team Gov team like there was just a lot of energy but like really good 
high quality getting stuff done and that was amazing to be around and then I think I I stayed connected to it because I'm I'm just really interested in how that model and I think I wrote another blog post about this you know what does what does one team housing or one team charitable foundation or one team ethical tech so you know that that model of building a movement across different organizations or different departments and going international I just think is really powerful for many other contexts. I think that that is the ultimate servant leadership offering to print the banners and take the hit for that at the first event. So when we were researching you we saw that you had a lot of awards um, too many to actually list at the beginning of the show. What award are you the proudest of and why? The awards that made the most difference to me was taking part in something called the Nesta Creative Pioneer Programme, where I was thrown together with, I think, about 25 other design graduates. And we were given the opportunity to basically design um, a new business and pitch for money. So it not only helped me start a business, the bigger influence on me was actually being around a bunch of other people who had in various different ways been the troublemaker at school, the disruptor, the one that challenged the status quo, the one that didn't fit in maybe in the kind of traditional education system, but we're all really talented designers and creatives. And being in that network was really reassuring and confidence building But also I was lucky to meet a few people in those early years who were already thinking about what's the role of design in public services. And so it did completely change my direction as well, because at the time I was working in fashion design and I left that programme and two years later was designing end of life care with hospices. Uh, I'm just imagining that as a Nesta version of RuPaul's Drag Race is... Don't know why that came into my head, but it sounds like you met some really cool characters there. Speaking of uh, fashion design, which is obviously what you just said you're in, can you tell us about a cool thing that you've made? Um, how rude can we get on this podcast? <laughs> well, it's funny that we're we're sitting in my friend's house here in North London, and. I met Sam actually when I worked in fashion, so quite a long time ago, and she founded the shop called Coco de Mer, which is a high-end sex shop, shall we say? (laughs) Is this the word getting a bit too... uh, Anyway, um, when I had my fashion company with my business partner at the time, Lois, we were commissioned by Sam to design some bedroom uniforms and well maybe I shouldn't go into any more detail than that I'll leave <laughs> you guessing so that that's probably one of the most fun things that I got to design but I think what was most interesting for me when I was work when I had my own fashion business was that we were doing that one day and then the next day I would be flying to Holland where we were designing supermarket uniforms for their biggest supermarket chain so it was very varied <laughs> but, <anyway. laughs> 
Okay, so as we come to the end of our chat with you, we love to make sure that our listeners have something new to go and look up and explore. So could you recommend for us one Twitter account that we should follow? So the Instagram account that I would really recommend following is, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to spell it, D-O-N-T-E dot C-O-L-L-E-Y. And this guy does the most amazing motivational videos every morning on Instagram and I think they'll really make you laugh good a left field one I like it and not sure if you are a podcast person apart from this one of course but a podcast to listen to so the podcast that I would recommend even though I've never listened to it myself um, but I just really like the sound of it is a new podcast by someone called Ali Goldsworthy on Twitter and she set up a new project Um, called the depolarization project and the podcast that she's just launched with open democracy is all about why do people like when have people changed their mind so they basically have someone on who talks about when they've changed their mind about something and what was it that made them change their mind and I just think that sounds really interesting that's a really cool concept good recommendation and how about a book So the book I would recommend is called Radical Happiness and it's written by a woman called Lynn Segal and it's just a brilliant read on the power of the collective. So Radical Happiness doesn't really in some ways represent what it's about but if you're someone that is interested in how we've like wrongly or unfortunately individualised so much of our lives and she does a really great sort of critique and analysis of that and then goes on to set to talk about how do we see ourselves again as part of something bigger than who we are as individuals and how do we kind of strengthen the collective. And yeah, that's that's been one of the key things that's inspired me to kind of write more and think more about collective design rather than user-centered design and how do you design for relationships rather than just individuals, etc. That sounds like a very deep thinking read. And finally, a charity or a social enterprise we should support. So I'm going to say two. I would support a charity called Little Village, which is like a food bank, but it's for baby things. So like a baby bank. They've got three sites now in London and like really big ambitions actually to basically grow kindness and that their sort of name stands for it it takes a village and the founder Sophia Parker is an amazing woman who actually obviously doesn't want what they do to exist at all and doesn't really want to do work that's just about plaster sticking so is also trying to use the work they're doing to really um, advocate and kind of influence policy too rather than just propping up a, a kind of system that shouldn't be functioning as it is and then the other one is more just to you know go and read about and 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 support and champion in in that way is something called participatory city which is uh, a really ambitious and really hopeful program of work that is currently happening in Barking and Dagenham but has ambitions to be global Great. A lot of good stuff coming out of Barking and Dagenham recently. That's really interesting. That's us. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Some of the most interesting answers we've ever had on the podcast. (laughs) 
Oh, it was really nice to get a chance to speak to you both. Thanks, Cassie. That was awesome. That's a wrap. So, Kamala, Cassie was saying to us that it was very intellectually stretching working at Dot Everyone. And for me, this whole conversation with Cassie in itself was intellectually stretching. I really feel like our brains have had a proper workout with some of the ideas and concepts that she was discussing. What do you reckon? Yeah, I totally agree. It felt like Cassie is about 10 steps ahead of anything I've ever worked in. I just loved how she clearly has a passion for A, thinking about things people haven't really thought about before and B, stepping into that gap to get stuff done. So she talked about the blog post she'd written, the point people and seeing that as a gap in entrepreneurship and creating a fairer space in technology. Even that story she had about printing the banners for One Team Gov, she clearly has this real ability to see problems and then actually do things about them. What did you think? Yeah, definitely. What I noticed and reflected on afterwards was when she was describing how she started out in service design before it became just about digital channels or you know, before it became popular through digital channels. She was one of the, the people who was working on how we design and deliver services across any medium for you know years ago in a way that I can see has really informed how she thinks about things now. So having that system landscape and that understanding of how things are connected has given her the grounding to be able to identify those sort of gaps that you talked about now. What did you reckon about what she was saying in terms of prioritizing relationships over infrastructure? I thought that piece was really interesting because what I feel like I see over and over again is people trying to prioritize infrastructure first and forgetting about relationships. And I like how she said that at the point people, one of the key objectives is being able to look across industry and bring relationships together to actually to be able to actually make a change. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. And thinking through a lot of what One Team Gov does is about bringing people together across functions and across disciplines. And what Cassie was saying about bringing people together around a deliverable, you can see how that can be really effective. So in setting a mission around building something, one, you know, people, for example, working in government digital services have often observed that it's really hard to pull together, say, someone from policy with someone from operations and someone who is working on a website. But it's the necessity of it is that those disciplines have to work together. And previously, it's been easier to continue to exist in your silos. And I loved the way she talked about how the work that she's been doing has really challenged those boundaries and started to break some of them down. Yeah, she talked about at Dot Everyone how it was quite challenging because there were so many people with different views and objectives. So people, for example, who care about business and then other people who care about policy. And I thought that was interesting, this idea of being able to make the most impact by working outside your immediate comfort zone. It's something that I think we all struggle with, but we all have to continue to work on. Absolutely. And along those lines, when she was mentioning about policy in the everyone space, how she'd realized how uncomfortable she was with influencing just through the traditional lines and how that can continue to perpetuate the 
the bias and the basis of power being within Whitehall or at the expense of many other capable organisations and people who are able to make that change on the ground. That was one of the, the most interesting points for me to, to really think about that and how simply a method of communication and the design of an organisation such as a campaigning organisation can almost be part of the problem. Yeah, and it was interesting when she was talking about tips to bring down the patriarchy and she said that a lot of her friends were relying on traditional power structures to get their support or to move forward in their careers and how the first step around changing those power structures is understanding what they are and how you as an individual interact with them, even just via Twitter. I I thought that was really interesting and it did make me really think about trying to run that program you were talking about to find out who you are following and who you're amplifying. Yeah, definitely. Cassie has since tweeted about that. So if anyone is interested to find that tool that you can use to check the gender of people you follow on Twitter, it's, it's on her Twitter feed. Um, but yeah, I mean, all of those points she she gave as examples, so giving a talk or writing a strategy or co-authoring a book and the kinds of people that you use behind the scenes to to influence that work and the kind of conversations you have and how she'd realised that in so many cases, people, especially women, are going to some of the more traditional groups of people to to get that advice and help. And what that has meant is that we're sort of continuing the message and the ways of doing things of that traditional group rather than stretching out our network and being influenced by people who think outside of the current traditional norm. So that was a really good challenge and I think all of us should take that up. And finally, one of the last takeaways for me was about distributed leadership versus walking in front. It's a common topic that we've asked the people that we've interviewed to speak to in terms of their style of leadership and what they think good leadership looks like. And I loved that Cassie had a very balanced view of it. And she had thought about her original views had been very much about the kind of servant leadership and leading from behind and how she'd realized throughout the work that she's done and the different organizations she's worked in that sometimes people want to be led or want to at least have some direction set rather than that sort of distributed model and how it's really important to be able to flex your approach as a leader to fit the organization's capability and maturity. And as someone who's recently moved to a new organization, that was very interesting. And I'm definitely going to be thinking about that in my own role. And what did you think about the answer to the coolest thing you've ever designed question? (laughs) That was the most unexpected answer to a question we have ever posed on this podcast. And I reckon it probably will always be So challenge to our future interview subjects, uh, think of something more hilarious and interesting than that. Yeah, please top that. I was laughing so much. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) The gauntlet is thrown. (laughs) And that's it from the One Team Gov show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time. <laughs>